Hi friends, I'm Christine Dynes, Integrative Epigenetic Health Specialist and host of the WellExamine podcast. WellExamine is where science and discovery meet human intuition and wellness to help everyone claim sovereignty over their health and vitality. Each episode, I'll chat with the most clever minds in integrative health, biohacking, and neurolinguistics, as well as reputable citizen scientists across all facets of wellness. As the world begins to take their health into their own hands, never before have we so badly wanted second, third, and fourth opinions. WellExamine serves to offer alternative treatments, ancient traditions, and the latest medical research with a measured dose of objectivity, levity, and a fun bedside manner. Welcome, friends. Today, we are on the beautiful island of Coronado in San Diego with integrative pediatrician and friend, Dr. Marianne Morelli-Haskell. Dr. Marianne has been in practice seeing kids for over 25 years now. In those 25 years, my family has known her for all seven years of my daughter's life. Uh, before we dive into the conversation, I want to tell you a little bit about when I first met Dr. Marianne. A couple of weeks before my daughter was born, I asked my doctor and midwife, Rob, who am I possibly going to take the baby to? Do you have any integrative pediatricians? I want someone just like me, but who specializes in pediatrics and is going to know everything about kids. So he tells me about this integrative pediatrician who is also practicing osteopathic medicine, and he assures me that this is the person I want to align with and gives me her number. So at my daughter's first visit a few days into her life, we are here to see Dr. Marianne. She invites my mom, my husband, my daughter, and me into the treatment room. My daughter had been constipated, and Dr. Marianne was giving her an osteopathic adjustment. I looked worriedly at her in that new patient way and asked, is she going to be okay? Dr. Marianne replied, oh, she's healthy and completely fine, but how about you? When's the last time you actually slept? <laughs> Then Dr. Marianne went on to tell my mom and my husband that when we got home from our visit, that I was supposed to take a nap while they took care of the baby so I could rest up. So the rest is pretty much history from there. Dr. Marianne has been taking care of not only my daughter, but us as parents for seven years now. So today we're going to have a fun chat on the ins and outs of integrative pediatrics from the perspective of Dr. Marianne's practice the current climate of the profession, and why our kids need it more than ever in the modern world today. Hi, Marianne. So good to be with you today. I have to ask you my favorite question first. What is your Ike guy or your purpose for living the life that you are? I've had a drive towards integrative medicine for kids since I was a child. I was actually hospitalized several times before I was, by the time I was three, uh, I was born in, in a northern climate and had a couple in the winter and had several infections. And I remember some of those hospitalizations. And uh, uh, and I know my mother wishes that she had known more about integrative medicine at that time. Uh, in my early 20s, I was very tired. I didn't have I didn't have energy. I had terrible allergies. And I spent a lot of time looking for answers. And uh, so I've applied that to my pediatric practice, and it's been very fun. I love that. That's awesome. I know a lot of parents say that they wish that they had known then what we know now. So your mom wasn't alone there. My mom has said that many times. So let's just jump right into integrative pediatrics 101 style. Can you help distill some of the key differences between conventional and integrative pediatrics for our newbies here listening today? Sure. 
So, so my training is, I, w- I went to an osteopathic medical school, and the philosophy is, a, is uh, we learn a lot that the body has the enormous ability to heal itself. And the doctor's job is to remove any roadblocks. Sometimes those roadblocks are in the structure of our body. Sometimes they're in our diet. Sometimes they're in, in different exposures. And we learned the additional tool of, of osteopathic manipulative medicine, which in, in since I work with children and, and newborns, is, is very gentle and can just be a huge help for a lot, for a lot of issues. I also did a I did a year of adult medicine a, after medical school, and I I did a pediatric residency, and so I was trained in traditional medicine. But all along, I was also learning functional medicine, ways to look at the underlying root cause of of disease. I love that. So it's awesome that you're actually a practicing osteopath. A lot of times we look at physicians' initials after the name and it says DO, but then you find out that they're not practicing osteopathy. And when I remember when my daughter was, you know, brand new, she was experiencing some birth trauma that you explained to me and you were able to help her with osteopathic adjustments. Can you talk about why osteopathy is so vital for infants and children? Gentle hands-on osteopathic uh medicine or manipulation is wonderful for infants and children. Unfortunately, in our current medical climate, which is usually short visits in 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 large facilities, it doesn't leave the time or space for that for that type of medicine. But it's particularly wonderful. I love seeing newborns within the first two days of life, first of all, to make sure that they're feeding and um, uh, that they're getting enough to eat, that they're doing well, that that mom is doing well, that breastfeed is feeding is going well, uh, but but also birth is n- is a natural process, and uh, the body has ways of 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 working out the kinks. But sometimes they're a little bigger than <laughs> than baby or mom can easily work out themselves. Oh yeah, and a lot of the newborn problems are are actually structural. So babies that have difficulty latching, sometimes it's because uh, because the tongue isn't working right. Sometimes it's due to a tongue tie, but sometimes it's because of a compression of the 12th cranial nerve, which, which goes to the tongue. Babies that have issues with spitting up, a lot of times that's related to the to the vagus nerve, which is the tenth cranial nerve. Oh yeah, <laughs> and uh, compression in the uh, in the area of the back of the head and neck that happened during during birth, and uh, uh, colicky babies. Even though we we say that we can't often figure out what's going on, but if you feel their structure, their their body's not very happy. Yeah, I'm so glad you make all those points when you talk about, uh, you know, colicky babies and babies who have GERD and uh, not latching because think about how many babies end up having their tongues cut or suddenly a baby's put on medication when it's all about just, you know, shifting something so gently, structurally, instead of introducing something into the body. I think that's a really important distinction that a lot of people be happy to learn. You're not introducing some external substance, but you're working with the body to help it do what it wants to, basically. Is that a good way of thinking of it? Absolutely. And, you know, we always think, I treat a lot of babies with uh, with crooked heads or, or torticollis, which is a crooked neck. And and sometimes that's from their in utero position, or, or sometimes it's 
it's what happened as they as they came through the birth canal. But the, the other end that we don't think about is the uterus is a tremendously strong muscle. Usually the baby is head down, and so the their tailbone gets pushed ah, on also. I didn't think about that. And, and that can affect... Uh, just their whole nervous system can affect their GI tract. And when they're born, their GI system is, is immature. It's not used to processing anything. And suddenly it's having to process uh, process food. <laughs> <laughs> and that sometimes takes a little while to work out. Yeah, that, that makes total sense to think of it that way. We'll get into baby's guts in a few minutes here. I really want to talk about that. But you know, in my own experience after visiting you, I felt so confident and capable of taking care of my daughter and knowing that, you know, you cared about our whole entire family's wellness. Uh, you know, you took so much time to get to know everything about us. You know, you checked in on me. You made sure that our family was, you know, always supported. And every time I left, I think, wow, does everyone get this royal treatment? You know, having sung all the praises of that. Can you walk us through what a typical visit is like, you know, to the office what, for people who have never been to an integrative practitioner um, and you're saying, you know, you take all this extra time. What can someone kind of expect? Now, I know it's personalized, but if you can give us a little bit of an idea if someone's thinking of coming in. Sure. So the so the first visit is all about finding out about the family, the the family history, the the child's history. Um and and that of course starts with paperwork, and <laughs> and then I and then we go through it and add details as as needed. I do a, a pediatric exam. We look at at development. We look at structure, and I also do an osteopathic structural exam for for infants and children. Uh, for older children, I also have them walk, skip, crawl, belly crawl, hands and knees crawl. Oh, cool! Because I want to get a sense of of how their development is. Um, the, the little bit older children, I'll also have them draw draw me a picture of themselves, and they will draw how their body feels. That's really cool. That's awesome. That's really neat. So um, since you're not dispensing pharmaceuticals, <laughs> in addition to osteopathy, uh, can you say more about how you work with food therapies or targeted nutraceuticals or any other bioregulatory therapies that you may prescribe to patients to optimize wellness? Well, so I do. I do use medications when when indicated, but but there a lot of times there there are other answers. Uh, I also take a diet history for for the mother if she's breastfeeding, and sometimes we can figure out if there's something in her diet that that the baby doesn't like. Some babies are fine with all kinds of food. <laughs> and then I've had other mothers that were had seven foods that their baby liked. <laughs> <laughs> so it varies quite a bit. Uh, and same with older children. I, I take a diet history and sometimes if they're if they're GI problems or allergy problems, we can we can pick out where the issues are. We want to make sure there are plenty of healthy fats, that there's that there's real food um, no dyes and and uh, things that are illegal in other countries that we seem to think are okay here. I love it. Uh, so something that I really wanted to talk about because it affects so many kids and so many uh, parents listening will share this. You, so you and I both experienced respiratory issues as kids. Um, your story is about being in the hospital during Thanksgiving, missing your mother's good cooking, and mine is about being rushed to urgent care by my parents in the middle of the night with inner ear pain. 
you know, I would have thought that after all these years of running, uh, you know, ruining children's guts with antibiotics, pediatricians would have begun working smarter when it comes to managing common cold and chronic upper respiratory issues. Where do you think it goes wrong for many pediatricians in this sense? And can you speak frankly about that? Are there, you know, tangible tools that simply aren't discussed in medical school? Or is it, you know, the influence of pharmaceuticals, both? What are, you know, what are the variables? Can you read between the lines for us here? I know that's a lot to pack into one question. Sure. I, I think that there's uh, that there's a lot more awareness of the gut. Um, I personally, because I had uh, so many early infections, I pretty much lived on antibiotics until I was five and then had them intermittently. And not that much was known about the gut. I don't even remember there being uh, probiotic supplements at the, at the time, although there have always been fermented foods that have been very important. Mm-hmm. But I, I think there's a lot, there are a lot of factors involved here. And it is coming into the general pediatric literature that, that it is important to to rehab the gut after an- antibiotics. And you can help stop that cycle of chronic ear infections or chronic infections by supporting the gut. The gut is is at least 70% of our immune system, I so know. it's vitally Incredible. important. Unfortunately, the trend towards elective C-sections has, has been a big issue. C-sections are, are um, a life-saving procedure many times, but but we're finding that it's really important for the baby to go through the birth canal and and receive the flora that they need uh, to colonize. And in my practice over the years, I've noted that that uh, oftentimes a later child who ends up having to have an emergency C-section, that there's a difference in their immune health. So when I take my history, I also look if mom has needed antibiotics during pregnancy or delivery, whether the baby needed antibiotics uh, early in life, and if there are things that we need to do to help support their gut, uh, to, to support their immune system. I'm glad you bring that up about the difference between C-section and, you know, come, like you said, coming through the birth canal. So when you have patients who maybe have switched from a conventional practice over to your practice? Obviously, it's education, but uh, or, or is it all in the education? Do you feel like patients sometimes put you on the spot? Well, why don't you just give an antibiotic? Or are you offering so many alternatives that it doesn't really come up so much in your practice? Like if a kid comes in for upper respiratory, you know, something like that. Well, it... If I if I feel like a child needs an antibiotic, I will I will sure let sure. the parents know mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> and prescribe an antibiotic. A, a lot of times they're they're looking for other the other answers. And early in my practice, I had to do a lot of lot of education. But I think a lot more people are more aware of of what's happening in our environment and with our food and, and a lot of these issues. So, so in, in general, a lot of people are understanding this better. Yeah. I've noticed that my friends who aren't in healthcare, you know, will just commonly talk to me about whatever probiotics their kids are on. And, you know, they don't just run to the doctor for every common cold or upper respiratory issue. So I feel like people are more inclined in general too. So, I still haven't mentioned um, Dr. Marianne's passion for an extensive research into autism, allergies, ear infections, and ADHD. 
So being in practice for as long as you have and conducting research and speaking, what are the patterns that you've tracked over time related to these growing health concerns? Uh, I guess I'm wondering from your own observations and research, what variables seem to continually pop up related to those health concerns? Well, I've seen I've seen issues in ch- in children change quite a bit in in the last two or three decades. When I was in residency at a major major children's hospital for three years, uh, back in the in the late nineteen eighties, I didn't see one child with autism. Oh my gosh! Now I see. That's sometimes amazing. I'll have three or four kids with varying degrees of autism in, in my office at one time. It's never normal for a child to regress after they've developed milestones. Yeah. Granted, they may regress for a couple of weeks when a new baby's born, but it, it, it doesn't become a pattern. And that's a really frightening trend to me. There are, only, yeah. there are very few things that I learned in my residency, very few rare s- syndromes that, w- that would cause a child who's developing normally to regress. Um, and there's so much ADHD. It, and, and teachers will tell you that they're just like, oh my gosh, you know, when I started teaching, you would have one or two children that were a challenge or had learning issues mm-hmm. or ADHD. Now it's half the, half the class. Now we have whole classes of kids with autism. Um, and I, 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 that's really frightening. And the, the number of children with, with asthma and allergies is, it's just, it's, it's exponential. Currently the autism rate is one in three somewhere between 1 in 36 and 1 in 40. That's astonishing. And back in the 80s, it was 1 in 10,000. So it's it's obviously something that we're doing. Yeah, you think? <laughs> <laughs> I think. This lovely environment of ours. Yes, and I think that people have never been in such a toxic environment from our air, food, water, uh pesticides on our food, farming practices, EMFs. Yeah. We've never been surrounded by uh, electromagnetic frequencies to the degree. And I th- I think a lot of people don't haven't recognized those I- those issues and and a lot of people are beginning to really become aware of them and it makes a huge difference in our children's health. It's it's dramatic. So how do you speak to people's, um, you know, beliefs? How do we educate parents that it doesn't need to be this pattern of ear infections and antibiotics, allergies, more antibiotics and ear infections? Uh, you know, the big question is, how how can we help people unlearn old thinking and move toward assigning value to integrative pediatric care? Wouldn't you say we have to change the thinking surrounding how parents care for themselves overall? Oh. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and I like to partner with parents, yeah, and and help them become educated. And one tool I use is uh, finding out the the reason for the child's issues. When did they start? What was happening around that time? Mm-hmm. Uh, were there developmental issues? Were there illnesses? Were there medications? Was there a fall or trauma? Was there an exposure to a, to a toxin? Uh, so so we go through and find out when the issue began for instance early in my uh, in my career i saw a child who had green pus dripping out of the ear ah oh. had been to the <laughs> ent um and when i took the history 
these were late onset ear infections after after age two, which oh, which is unusual. And so when I took the history, the mom had already figured out some dietary things, had taken the child off milk, had cleaned up the diet, and and yet we still had this green dripping ear. And I said, well, what happened around that time? And she said, well, the child had a hard fall on the back of their head on the sidewalk, on oh, the cement goodness. sidewalk. And what happened is the 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 ear is set in the two temporal bones on either side of the head. And the fall on the head caused a jamming on one side where that ear couldn't drain. Oh, my gosh. And so, so interesting. So with osteopathic treatment, some some natural medicine, um, and and the child being closely followed by the ear, nose, and throat doctor, we were we were able to help that child get it cleared up. But it's unusual for an ear infection, ear, chronic ear infections, to start that late unless there's a triggering event. So in that case, we were able to find out what the triggering event was, and unwind it. Unwind it, yeah, I love that. So do you find that as you're you know playing medical detective and you're asking questions to this degree that parents sort of naturally unfold what's going on emotionally and talk more openly about their lifestyle. And then by doing so, they're open to hearing feedback from you about, you know, making those subtle changes. And, you know, like you talk about, um, you know, EMFs and how it's pervasive, you know, so pervasive, but we can't see it. You know, are you finding that some of these newer topics are just like, you know, the ones 20 years ago that were challenging for you to talk about or people you know, are, are more open to it now than ever. What would you say the climate is of like being able to talk to people about what's going on in their lifestyles and the introduction of these new environmental variables? I think, I think it's opening up more and more. When, when I was in my pediatric residency, we, we always joked that the parents would give you the diagnosis if you just listened carefully. (laughs) I love that. That's great. Um, the one thing I do get a lot of pushback, especially from dads, are the EMFs because because somehow the computer has to be working all night. But uh, <laughs> yeah, but but we know that children sleep better when the Wi-Fi is off at night, and and I think electronics are one of the biggest battles in parenting. Cell phones should not be a toy for toddlers. They their their skull is very thin. The EMFs go right through. They affect them more than us. Yeah, directly to their bone marrow. It's amazing. Yeah, and and it's very vi- uh, visually addictive, um, particularly for little boys. And I I used to find with my child that if I had to take away whatever limited electronics there were, I would think, oh no, how am I going to get anything done? <laughs> but I would find that he was he was calmer. He would find things to do. Uh, because he knew he wasn't going to get his computer time. And um, I think if you don't start out pretty strict on that, it it only gets worse. <laughs> yeah. So how is he now? He's entering adulthood. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's, it's not easy. Cell phones at the table are my biggest beef. It oh, makes me insane. insane. <laughs> yeah, my parents would never have allowed that if cell phones were around when I was a kid. No way. Um, but, but he knows, you know, and it also makes me nervous kids wearing, uh, carrying their cell phones in their pocket or attached to their body. They don't support the health of our tissues. Yeah. They certainly aren't protecting their future fertility. Are they? Totally. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, that's really awesome to hear that you're saying that parents are more perceptive, 
overall. I work with adults, so I get a lot of pushback on these uh, patterns that no longer serve. But, you know, parents look at their kids and say, okay, well, I have to be here as their advocate. So I guess I need to be more open-minded. Yeah. Yeah. The World Health Organization has has come out and said that there shouldn't be Wi-Fi in classrooms in children under six. Uh, it, it's a it's a huge issue. Um, they found that 25-year-olds that overplay violent video games have testosterone levels of 80-year-olds. Oh, my goodness. And and there are actually quite a few studies about the effects of, of, of EMFs, more than I had imagined. Uh, but it's it's a huge issue affecting affecting adults and kids. And the baby monitors uh, have frequencies that where they shouldn't be close to babies' heads. That's interesting. Have you seen those? Um, I I won't mention the brand name, but have you seen the uh, breast pumps that are connected to Wi-Fi now that you can just wear in your bra? I don't know if any mothers have come in and talked to you about those yet. No, you can I'm... turn the wi you can turn the Wi-Fi off and get them to work. But I just thought, who needs a breast pump that's hooked up to Wi-Fi? Why did they have Wi-Fi in them? Oh, so you could schedule and remind yourself from your phone because it fits right into your bra. So it's made for working mothers or mothers who are on the go. So you don't have to stop to hook up, you know, the big contraption. Yeah, but that's so it sounds like a fantastic invention. But then you've got Wi-Fi on there. But you, and know, it, you, and can, probably, you can disconnect your phone from it. But if you don't know ahead of time that you can disconnect it, then it might always be running on Wi-Fi. So you might get patients who are coming in talking to you about that soon, too. So you might get more breast cancer. Yeah, that's and what actually we were the about. phone shouldn't be close to the baby. Yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, they actually, apparently, they actually have bras that have places for cell phones, which is a little bit frightening because you really don't want those frequencies in tender tissue. <laughs> no, there's a new company who's developed some shorts that are silver lined, where they're for men, where you can put your phone in your pocket, but I haven't seen any gear like that yet for women or for kids. Yeah. The kids should be walking around with cell phones, but as we just discussed, some of them are. So when you have teenagers coming in, do you discuss it directly with them? Do you, does it come up in your conversation? If teenagers are coming in and the parents are saying they're having trouble concentrating, you know, they can't sleep at night. Do you automatically go to EMFs and discuss that? Sometimes, yeah, and I I have had some children that are sensitive and and get headaches in school from the milieu of the Wi-Fi and computers and things. Yeah, I think it's definitely worth pursuing, like we've talked about before, about um, going through your whole house on a daily basis and detaching at night and protecting your home. Oh yes, absolutely. Electronics should not and TVs should not be in children's bedrooms. I think everything should be parked in a place where the parents know where it is. Yeah, and because sure. uh, kids don't, teenagers don't sleep if they're getting binged all night. Um, and it's it's a dopamine rush when you get a text from from somebody. Um, it it's actually a a huge. Um, huge safety issue. Yeah, we can have an entire podcast, you know, devoted to the subject. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. So I guess in closing, I really want to know, how do you see integrative pediatrics continuing to evolve overall from here? Well, it's continuing to grow because parents get frustrated with chronic illness and and so do pediatricians. And, uh, 
and we're just learning more and more. And there's, there's, there's so much we can do to help our kids. Yeah. Any words of wisdom to bestow on new parents or just any of us about taking care of our kids? You know, I think just being aware of a lot of the the current issues, being really aware of what's happening to our food supply. Um, I think I think GMOs in our food has been a huge insult to our to our gut microbiome. Yeah, and has contributed to to a lot of issues in in children. Um, a parent said to me the other day, when, when my child was a baby, you told me they would eat what they what you fed them. And you're <laughs> right. And if you feed them vegetables from early on, they will eat vegetables. Now they may go up and down about it, but but they know. I have a teenager and uh, you know, they don't always do what they know, but but he knows how it makes him feel. Yeah, that awareness is huge. He said, I need to get those sodas I bought when my friends were over out of the house because I don't feel good when I drink them. In fact, he sent me a, he sent me a text message yesterday. He goes, how can you possibly have this much sugar? And it was a picture of a, a can of a soda that had a hundred per 20, 120% sugar. Oh my or, gosh. Or carb, or, <laughs> yeah. Total <laughs> carbohydrates. Yeah. Even my daughter at seven is, you know, gaining a lot of awareness, she knows she'll come up to me and say, Oh, I didn't really feel well after eating it. Maybe you, she'll tell me, maybe I should get that out of the house. <laughs> so yeah. My, my other favorite is the, the super spicy, uh, chips. That, I haven't seen those that have, um, I won't name any brands, but have <laughs> about 60 ingredients, mostly chemicals. So, so one day we were having a discussion about that, and I said, "Okay, read this list and find me a find me a food in this list because it was literally probably 60 chemicals." And he goes, "Salt." <laughs> that's scary. Yeah, as soon as kids can read, I think that's a huge lesson for them. But yeah, I agree with you. Definitely, organic food is just basic now. So it is. And unfortunately, it's 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 not cheap, but you and you have some families may have to pick and choose which things are more most important to get organic. But but it makes it they've done studies and uh, it really helps children a lot. And it actually reduces the level of glyphosate and some of these toxins in their in their systems. And I've been telling, uh, I'm sure you do the same thing. I've been telling parents, get your kids out to the farmer's markets and off of their devices and teach them to actually socialize with (laughs) the people in the community. Talk to the farmers, not just about the organic food, but just talking to them and interacting with them. And I think, like you said, there's that value add. So like your son is saying, he understands and is aware how it's making him feel. Yeah. Yeah. That's that. my son started going to the farmer's market when he was a couple weeks old. And oh, I love that. So and cute. having them grow things, uh, even if you can just do herbs in pots, but, you know, so that they know where food comes from and what, what real food is, because uh, a lot of kids don't really know. Yeah. So for anyone living in San Diego who's listening, you can take the ferry over from uh, mainland downtown and you can come over to the beautiful farmer's market. What day is your farmer's market over Tuesday here? afternoon? Yeah. Tuesday afternoons. Uh, we walked through it the other day and it was so awesome. There were a lot of little kids over there and everybody was so friendly. So it's a great place to 
um, introduce your kids if you want to go on a little family adventure. And even if you're not in San Diego, obviously summer's here. So get your kids out there and start meeting people in the community and know where your food comes from for sure. All right. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. You're welcome. It was awesome talking to you. I can't wait until the next time. We have so much more we can talk about again. Absolutely. 